You're listening to the Feed the Ball podcast with me, your host, Derek Duncan. And my guest for episode 81 is golf architect Jim Nagel. This talk is the latest in an ongoing and probably never-ending dialogue about restoration, renovation, and the age-old urge of club memberships to continue to tinker with their golf courses in the name of making them better or structurally improved or defensible against the modern player's arsenal of shots. Sometimes that's done through going back in time to recapture the essence of some original version of the course. Sometimes it's done through modernization or introducing a modified architectural program. And sometimes it's a hybrid of both. If you'd have asked me five or maybe ten years ago, I'd tell you the predominant trend among most top courses and clubs was to undertake a level of accurate historical restoration, in which the consulting architect attempted to reintroduce as closely as possible features and presentations of the original design based on photos, aerials, and other documentation. While not true in every case, that period marked, in my view, the high point of a more evangelical devotion to restoration in which clubs, memberships, and designers all strove to faithfully reenact the best historical version of their course's features with modern turf and infrastructure on top. Recently, that impulse has loosened. More and more club committees and architects seem willing to faint toward true restoration while taking alternative design liberties. They may begin with historical restoration and an understanding of what originally existed, but then audible into modifications of their own devising. This is commonly known as sympathetic restoration, replicating the look and feel of what was first created without necessarily adhering to the details. And there are certainly many degrees to this along the renovation-restoration spectrum. The merits and drawbacks of each of these degrees are open to debate, and there are few people better positioned to have that debate than Jim Nagel. Nagel began working with his design partner Ron Force in 1998, and the two specialize in golf course renovation and restoration. Force, in fact, who joined me on Feed the Ball episode 31, was a pioneer in the field, one of the first architects to develop the concept of historic restoration in the late 1980s. Prior to that, most club renovations were aimed at updating and modernizing the course, not taking it back to its roots. Serious historians, Nagel and Force have worked with dozens of clubs across the country. The list of clients they've had is staggering, and they've developed a specialty of restoring the courses, particularly of Donald Ross, and kind of who hasn't, and William Flynn, which makes sense since Nagel lives in Pennsylvania, and much of Flynn's work is concentrated around Philadelphia. Nagel has seen all sides of the business, from pure restoration steeped in intensive research to working with clubs and tweaking their pedigreed layouts to compensate for the distances players are driving the ball and the new demands of improved agronomics and turf conditions. Nagel's been doing this work for over 25 years and is as experienced, measured, and as knowledgeable about architects from William Flynn to Bill Langford to Charles, excuse me, Hugh Allison as it gets. He's also a great communicator whose intelligence and assuredness gives clubs confidence their courses are in good hands. I could go on, but it would be much more insightful and interesting to hear from him. I know you'll enjoy this very detailed and candid conversation with Jim Nagel. It always helps if you turn the microphone on. If you're going to use a microphone, you probably should be powered up. (laughs) Sorry about that. That's all right. It's like I've never done this before. (laughs) 
I was just going to say, you know, we're not recording through video, so if you feel yourself slinking back on that nice leather oh. sofa... Go for it. That's, that's <laughs> you probably good. had a long you probably had a long day and I, I I'm at Lancaster Country Club and I started at about seven thirty so yes we're, we're, it's been a long day but it's well, been what a, a great what a we're we're privileged to have you then after a long day you're we're, we're recording this at eight p.m. at night so you're in your thirteenth <laughs> hour almost so uh, we appreciate the effort a hero's work it's an honor to be here an honor <laughs> to speak with you so so are you in the clubhouse right now or did they just let I you am. I, yeah, I just finished up dinner here at the clubhouse, spent uh, spent all day working on the golf course and um, figured what a great spot to be able to talk to you. Absolutely. Yeah, I wish I was there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'd love to talk about Flynn and Lancaster and Lehigh and all these things. What are you doing at, La- at Lancaster right now? What's the program so, there? At Lancaster, we've got the 2024 Women's Open. Um but also we rebuilt, we've, we've been working with Lancaster for pushing 17 or 18 years. Yeah. Um, we rebuilt the bunkers last time in 06, reopened in 07. And so we got a lot out of them. And um, so last year we embarked on a, a complete, what was supposed to be a bunker shell out, just clean them out, put some, a new liner in. And that certainly evolved, let's say, um, to the point that we're uh, modifying holes, doing everything we can to stay within a, a sort of a Flynn program, um, not deviate from what Flynn might have a tendency to do, and but improve. It's if you've ever been to Lancaster, um, it's an incredible golf course. It starts out with relatively short par fours, and then it's kind of you know hold on because the long par fours. And the elevation changes start to hit you. And um, so we've been making some modifications here and there. We're just about done with the bunkers. And after we do that, we'll start looking at some fairway lines once the, the weather is starting to cool off, obviously, here. And we're going to start doing some fairway shifting and some fairway expansion, things like that. But um, so at this point, we're looking at full bunker renovation, fairway modifications, continued tree programs. We've never really stopped with the tree program here. And the more we un here at Lancaster, the more unbelievable it, it, it is. Um, and um, so we're, everything we've ever done here is member driven, but obviously we've got our sights set on that 2024 Women's Open. Yeah, which is always a, for so many clubs, that eye on that tournament, keeping one foot in the tournament department can lead clubs astray. Not saying that that Lancaster's like that at all. Not all clubs are, but it definitely there's a track record of courses that have a tournament history or who are chasing tournaments. Once they get that and they get people in their ear and they start to envision what the professionals or the highest levels of amateur are going to do to their golf course, it it, it affects their their programs. So it, there's always that tension, isn't there, between continuing the program that has been successful and the architecture that's existed there forever, and and also being something else for that one week every five or six years. Yeah. And that thing here in Lancaster, um, like I said, we've worked with them for so long that the changes, the modifications are always member driven. But when you look at the excellence of, of the architecture, the design and the Flynn design and the modified and then the course conditioning, and the region also, I think has a big impact. You know, we're, we're an hour outside of Philly essentially. But the turnout for the first women's open set records. So this is 
say it's golf starved because we're still in Pennsylvania, which is a great area. Most people didn't realize what was here when they saw Lancaster Country Club. And so you take all of these factors and that's what I think contributes to their ability to host some sort of event like that. But the changes have never been driven by the actual event itself. It's always been driven by the needs and wants of the membership. Now, the timeline of when things might get implemented is modified sometimes based on the last year we had to get these fescue areas and, you know, where we're expanding fescue areas, we had to get those seeded at a certain time so that we knew by 2024, they're going to be in prime condition for, for that open. And we've got such a great team here with the contractor, with the green chairman and the committee. Um, we all really are working together to, to keep this place relevant, to keep it, um, keep it ready for those types of events. Have you ever been in a situation where the direction of the club is a little tilted too much toward being in a tournament um, environment where they wanted to do something that you felt might not have been good for the long-term benefit of the golf course, but it might've been beneficial for a short period of time for a tournament? No, you know, Ron and I with, with force design, we've had the good fortune of, of a number of clients that have hosted events and for us, it's always been either sort of capped off with a, a senior open or a, a women's open. We've had women's am, women's senior opens. With those events, they don't have to sort of go beyond the threshold of, of where they are architecturally. Most of these courses, whether it's the Broadmoor or a longtime past client with Salem or Lancaster here, um, they don't need to go beyond where they are to sort of serve that other entity, that tournament for us architecturally, because then we don't feel like we're having to compromise and done from a, a restoration standpoint, or just, you know, working with that club that we're doing just for that event. So we've been very fortunate in that regard that we can sort of maintain the integrity of those designs without really deviating from that and, and doing something that might be uncharacteristic of that particular style of architecture. Yeah. How does that strike you personally when you see clubs, you know, basically do undergo a facelift in an attempt to attract a high level tournament? It happens. I can think of a number right now that have done it recently. Does that, it was, is that something you'd be involved in? Do you ever have, have to, would you have to make uh, a professional, like a hard moral choice or an ethical choice to, to be involved in that? I, that's a tough decision because we haven't been faced with that yet. Um, we've lost out on some of those jobs that you're talking about. And I think in those particular, Ron and I have wanted to stay somewhat true to the architecture, but if we were commissioned with a course that maybe said, listen, we want to go after this particular event and maybe it didn't have necessarily a significant architectural past. I think we might be willing to do that, but I think there's some courses out there where we still feel that the original architect really, really did a good um, I can think of one project that, that, that's coming down the road, let's say. And in fact, we don't even have the job yet. We're just interviewing. And we always talk about restoration of design intent. Okay. And so if we can still maintain the integrity of the design, but push features further out, We'll do that as long as we're not forcing it on the land. 
Okay. In other words, doing something that just doesn't fit in the topography, whether it's moving bunkers or whether it's building tees or, you know, doing something that just doesn't fit within that topography. That's just never been our style. Um, we want to make sure that it's representative of that original architecture, but also does not look like it's been imposed on the land. So much of our work with forest design has been always been steeped in the classic architecture, whether it's Ross, whether it's Flynn, whether it's Tillinghast. We try and stay within that program. Um, you, you ask such a great question because believe me, if somebody dangled that carrot, of a U.S. Open or, you know, whatever, a PGA type event, I think we then have to look internally and say, is that something we're interested in? Because obviously you're looking at TV time, you're looking at more notoriety. What does that do? Does that gain more projects in the future? I think we have to ask ourselves at that particular moment where how does it benefit us, but does it also then sort of bastardize that original architecture? Uh, and I think it's just case by case dependent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in one way, the ideal situation would be if there was a golf course, as as you alluded to, that maybe wasn't as architecturally strong or as heritage wasn't as rich that did want to make a move. And then that would allow for you and Ron to go in and be creative and put into the ground these ideas that I'm, I know you have in your head and have had for a long time oh, yeah. to oh, do something yeah. like really creative and, and fresh and new and say like, here's an opportunity and with the, you know, the professional game in mind or whatever it have you be. But then there's always that, that, that line that you have to is out there that, you know, well, maybe it's not architecturally significant, but it still existed. You know, it's still an expression of somebody's original thought and you've spent exactly. your entire career preserving those types of places. So it's exactly. a bit of a catch 22. There is, there is definitely a catch 22. And, and, you know, I think Lancaster is a perfect example because William Flynn worked here for um, like 26 years. Okay. He started here in 1919. He, he passed away in 1945. When you look at the architectural evolution of Lancaster, there was portions of the property that were sold off to founding members certain parcels, certain greens no longer exist because somebody bought some land. So they had to go internal to the property. You cross the Conestoga for holes three, four, five, and six. Those were not part of the original design. Lancaster evolved. You know, it changed in, in the 26 years that Flynn was here. And since then it always changed. So when we come here and we start looking at things that we know it's going to continue to evolve because the game continues to evolve and the maintenance practices continue to evolve. As I walked out of the, of the grill here, um, I looked over and there on the wall was a picture. It had to be from sometime in the 1990s at Lancaster. And it was the typical over treed tree lined golf course that doesn't exist anymore here. And so since that doesn't exist, we've had to adapt with how the course evolves based on the fact that we've been in this, this tree management program and we still have to, the course still needs to be able to defend itself. So I have no issue with what we're doing here at Lancaster because the thought process is always about the integrity of the original plus then we can, we can never get into the mind of William Flynn and say, what would William Flynn do today? We don't know what William Flynn would do today. And I think it's foolish for anyone to say, oh, well, Donald Ross would do this today. So what we do is we look at the tendencies, look at what he did elsewhere on other courses, 
and think about his design philosophies and how he bunkered courses and hopefully adapt something to Lancaster that fits the land, that still has um, a sense of scale about it because Flynn was just, there's so much beauty in his courses, but there's very little symmetry. So there's a lot of variety in his bunker sizes, locations, orientations, all of those things. These are the things that we're thinking about as we look at Lancaster. Coming down the pike, then, we have Philadelphia Country Club, which, you know, recently we had an 84% positive vote by the membership to restore that golf course. So they have a whole infrastructural issue where their bunkers are dated, their greens are so, you know, poorly drained. They need to rebuild greens. We're going to regrass. We're going to do this big project at Philadelphia Country Club that's driven by infrastructure, but at the same time, we have a chance to restore it. Or I'm sorry, I said Lancaster, but Philadelphia. So Philadelphia hosted the 39 Open. And they have essentially said, you know, here's what we have. Here's what we have in our archives. We've worked with Philadelphia now for over 20 years. I have spent more time in their archives looking at something like looking at their history. There's actually some really good footage on YouTube of that yeah, <laughs> championship. Yeah, that's great stuff. Yeah. And so they want to restore what was there. So you, you have Lancaster on one hand that's evolving and changing. And it's not to say Philly is not evolving. Philly is so good and the ground is so good that we can restore that and we can make some very minor tweaks because the ground allows us to do that by moving some bunkers further away from tees and to, to reintroduce those to play that essentially we're restoring it. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see how things happen from course to course. Yeah, there's a couple things I'd comment on about that. The, the first is just about the, the bunker shifting, which is a common thing, and it makes a lot of sense. Is there ever a discussion to say, well, let's keep the bunker where it was originally and then add a bunker? Does that just Is that a case-by-case scenario where it just becomes too case. cluttered, or you're case. trying to do too much by preserving and adjusting? Case-by-case. Case. So even let's, let's – we'll just continue right in this line of, of Lancaster and Philly. So the third hole here at Lancaster Country Club has three bunkers on a diagonal echelon on the right side of, of their for the Conestoga. So many different design concepts where we're going to go from three bunkers to two and we're going to gap them. We're going to you know move them and the land allows us to do this. And my goodness, we probably started that the design redesign on that third hole. I don't want to say probably a year ago. Yeah, I can say a year ago. And this morning I'm driving over to the club and I'm thinking, man, I think we're overthinking this thing. Like we're going to go from three to two, but 14 here at Lancaster has two bunkers on the outside left and they're, they've got a gap between them. Maybe we're, maybe we're making things too similar. The green chairman, myself, superintendent, and we just sat there and we, we talked about this and, and all of a sudden we decided, you know what, we got to keep the three. And the three is very Flynn-like, even though Flynn did two on 14, he's got three over here. Let's stick with that and let's just not add a bunker, but let's take that third bunker and shift it out a little bit further. So we're sticking with the three, even though we had talked about going to two. The one example that we talk about often, their green chairman here at Lancaster, Rory Connaughton, he oftentimes referenced 15 at Marion, where 15 at Marion had two bunkers on the inside of the dog leg. And in their most recent renovations, they added a third further out. Still very Flynn-like, but they added that bunker in line sort of with what you're talking about. At Philly, 
we really are not adding any bunkers, but the ground is allowing us to just simply pick them up and move them. They remain visible from the tee, which Flynn wrote about, about being bunkers being visible. They still fit on the land and they sort of recapture the design intent where at one time the ball only flew so far and now, you know, we're, we're that much further away. But then you take the 17th hole at Philly where it's a slight dogleg right, blind tee shot over this crown in the fairway. And boy, nobody's going to see that hand movement that I'm doing there. But anyway, we're, we're adding bunkers there because guys are just bombing the ball way past those existing bunkers. So there we needed to add. So you can see it's case by case basis. You did something similar to that at Rolling Green on 18, whereas the original plan had that that bunker complex kind of short right. And mm-hmm. if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but but you shifted that more kind of in the landing area and maybe maybe added one. But it sounds like a similar concept to what you're describing. Very very, very similar. I think if I remember correctly at Rolling Green, I think we. We didn't add anything at that point. We added one further up on the right-hand side. Right. Almost like in the second landing zone. Yes. Yeah. And then it was on number 12, or I'm sorry, um, yeah, number 12 mm-hmm. on the inside of the dog leg, there were, there were two bunkers, and they lost a bunch of trees, so it was becoming very simple. Guys could just almost take the inside of the dog leg inside the bunkers, so we added a third. And again, that's very Flynn-like to even just go from two to three, that he would have that trio of bunkers on the inside of the dog leg. Yeah. Going back to Philly and Lancaster, my question would be how – I, and I, ask, I would ask this, I have this all the time, I, I would ask anybody, and I don't think that anybody really has the answers. How do you ever know when you're looking at a golf course, what's happened to the greens and how they've evolved? I, I bring this up because you mentioned um, advances in agronomy and, and turf grasses and things like that. And obviously, you know, when your greens are running faster, you have to make modifications. A lot of times they happen over the years. But before you make, before an architect in your position would make a modification to a green based on a club's desire to have faster greens, how easy or difficult is it to even know how the greens have evolved since 1925 until 1995 or 2005 or 2015, whatever it is? Uh, I, I don't know how you know, because you hear stories and say, oh, you know, these greens haven't been touched. Well, maybe they hadn't ever been cored out and redesigned, but they're not the same as they were back then. So you're kind of, it's, it's, it's shooting in the dark in a, in a sense, knowing what has been preserved and what hasn't. Correct. So there's, I think there's multiple answers to that. Right. (laughs) Multiple questions. So multiple (laughs) is I think you need to have an understanding of the original architect. If we're talking restoration or if we're talking a classic course to understand What's the difference between a Tillinghast green and a Ross green and maybe, and more importantly, the, the era that Ross might have built those greens um, and Flynn greens and, and having an understanding of that also understanding, you know, for some clubs, it's their archives. You know, the, the beautiful thing about Philly country is there are, are, are there archives? We, we know when greens were rebuilt because they still have the drawings in their archives. So that's great. That's an advantage for sure. That, oh, very much so. Um, other clubs 
you know, sometimes you just don't know. If we, if we, if we use Philly, Philly's 18th green was rebuilt by the Gordons. The Gordons, William Gordon specifically, weren't learned under William Flynn. Ron and I have done a lot of Flynn work, have studied a lot of Flynn greens plans, studied his greens. The, the best way to break down his greens is to think oftentimes about three high points. It's not the standard, but it's pretty close. Three high points set at different points on the dial. Whether or not that high point is internal to the green, external, or the green is actually riding up on the middle of that high point. But you could see those high points rotating along the dial. When you walk on a Flynn course, oftentimes it's pretty evident whether or not something's been rebuilt. And when you look at the 18th green at Philly Country, the, the Gordons had that same principle of the three high points. Dick Wilson did too. Sometimes Wilson and Gordon threw maybe a fourth high point in there. But they exaggerated them. So they almost look – some people would describe them as being potato chips you know, with, with the contours and the rolls. If you go over Philadelphia Country Club, it's you, – you can pick up pretty quickly – on what greens were rebuilt. Um, you know, we did with, with rolling green, they had the 16, 16 women's am. And I remember specifically, and we don't, we don't work more, but we, we did a lot of work with them in 13 years, but I remember specifically getting a phone call from the superintendent, Ron force and I were working on Davenport country club and we were driving back and, and the phone rang and it was the superintendent there. And he says, Jim, he says, man, we, you know, we got to do something. We got to do something. Um, we got the women's am coming. And one thing we need to do is we got to expand greens. And, and they had at that point, a lot of sand dams that were holding water back. Um, the greens had. So we had the, th the greens 3d laser scanned which means we had the, the topography built for the greens, had, been, had it mapped. And you could tell where the sand dams were. But more importantly, when you looked at those greens and you under, this goes back to your question about understanding processes, the greens were really flat in some areas. And what happened was it was just the top dressing through the years. So the top dressing filled the lows, but it's right. not proportionate. Yep. It doesn't fill the highs like it fills the lows. So when we, so we, we did an assembly line process where we expanded the greens over, I think we did it in 22 days. At the same time, we went in and stripped out a lot of these low areas and took that excess material out to essentially restore what Flint had by getting the slopes back in there. Um, so I think it's to have it, it's important for the architect to understand that. I recently, I think there's been a, there's been a couple conversations about the Mark Twain golf club up in, uh, Elmira, New York, a great old Donald Ross golf course. And I went there years ago. Gosh, it's probably been 20 years. We were doing work at Corning Country Club. And the superintendent asked me, he says, hey, do you, do you want any of this stuff? That it was, it's municipal golf course. So they were ready to throw this stuff out. I said, well, what is? He goes, I don't know. It's just a bunch of letters and stuff. And I started reading the letters. And it was exchanges between the municipality and Ross's foreman who was going to build the golf course. 35. And at that point, a hurricane had ripped through North Carolina. And in his correspondence, he's talking about how Ross is going to rebuild some greens and that he's starting, he's converting the greens from oil and sand to Bermuda, you know, newly built greens and the top dressing program. 
So if you remember, a lot of people used to talk about, whoa, Ross Green is crowned. Ross crowned all of his greens. I think I'm in 1935, you know, and it took Pete Dye and Ron Witten to discover a lot of stuff that was going on at, at um, um, Pinehurst, Pinehurst. Sorry. and to understand that Ross's greens weren't just crowned greens. So mm-hmm. I, I really think it's the architect needs to be an expert in the particular style of architecture or that architect and how they built greens, but even specifically onto that specific site because these guys didn't do the same thing everywhere, but it's just, if you, if they rebuilt five greens and there's, you know, 13 remaining original greens, it should be pretty easy to pick up on what's not original and what is. Yeah. Speaking of Flint, I was at um, Cherry Hills a few months ago and I'm not sure that the club knows exactly what had been done over the years, but in my conversations, there was, they said, well, the, the greens haven't been touched. These are, you know, Flynn's original greens. And, I was I was just thinking to myself, why would you build greens like this in nineteen in the nineteen twenties, nineteen twenty six? Because there's not a lot of character to them. These look like tournament greens to me. They are they're designed to to be able to putt at twelve, thirteen, fourteen, yeah, yeah. whatever. And and there, Cherry Hills is a, is a club that wants high level tournaments, so those greens are not going to be modified or put back to Flynn. But for the most part, they're you know designed to be shaved down. And, it, and I don't think that was, it was a case of, of anything ever really maybe happening to them or be, them being rebuilt over time. It's just through maintenance procedures and practices. They just level Without out and get flat. And then you uh, can continue to be updated with the latest grasses and, uh, you know, incredibly talented superintendents who know how to get them running fast. And, and there you go. You have these greens that are not really Flynn greens anymore, but it's a Flynn golf course. Kind of the thing that I know you have to deal with all the time about that coexistence of of club desires for fast greens maintenance procedures superintendents who are so capable and want to probably please their membership and and push the the pedal down and then you're in a position where you're dealing with these treasures that you want to preserve and uh, maintain the character of them without question the i think i think the best example of that and i'll without naming names Ron and I, and we, we have projects we call retro redo. Okay. And a retro redo is basically essentially saying, okay, we had this course by this architect. It's been changed through the years, but we want to go back to that particular architect or we want to rebuild everything. And we have the plans or we have, you know, we, we want to restore everything first T to 18th green. And we've had a number of those projects. So this particular project, was a Donald Ross course and we were going to do a complete rebuild and the club said, well, listen, you know, we want to, we want to be able to roll our greens at essentially 12 to 13 all the time. And they said, you have to keep that in mind when you're designing. And Ron and I both kind of, you know, looked at each other, conferred with each other and it was came to the conclusion and Ron spoke up and said, well, if you want to run at those speeds, you can't have Donald Ross greens. You yeah, can't. that's the choice, right? <laughs> that is the choice you're making. Do you want speed or do you want Donald Ross greens? And they didn't, they didn't respond right away, but eventually to us and said, we want the Ross greens. And we said, great. You know, then we can give you the best that we have for, for Ross greens and our knowledge of Ross. And when people play that particular course, they oftentimes come back and say, wow, 
those greens are exceptional. And had they chosen the other option to go with speed, they wouldn't have anything comparable to really good Donald Ross greens. I have a project right now where we're, you know, this is the construction season and we're building new greens at, at this particular golf course. And the, the whole notion, the superintendent and the speeds that they want and everything is like this number, this number just keeps showing up to 2.2. We cannot exceed 2.2%, cannot exceed 2.2%. And I said, you know, it's just for, just for listeners, 2.2% slope for pinning areas on a green. You have to yes, have, right. it has to be flat enough in that area, in the pinnable areas. Two is pushing it. Two, yep. 2.2 is pushing it at, at 13. Yeah. And as an architect, you struggle with that because you want to create something that has challenge, that has variety. Um, there's a green that we rebuilt out of uh, out in the Philadelphia area, Concord Country Club, which is a complete departure of the typical Philly Flynn. It's a really cool golf course. And if somebody said, well, what inspired you for that green? I'd tell them, well, it was a little Indian Creek. It was a little Lehigh, might even have a little Lancaster in there, you know. But the thing I love about that green, we pushed the envelope with slopes. And some of the members, specifically one member, constantly comes back. He says, Jim, it's it's two years. I haven't figured that green out yet. Jim, it's three years. I haven't figured that green out yet. When you're doing 2.2% or less. It doesn't take that long. <laughs> it doesn't take that long to figure the green out. And so I think it limits the creativity um, of the design, you know, when you when you those percent slopes. Yeah. yeah. Especially, especially doing the work that we do, you know, if you're going to go in and Springfield country club in Ohio, great, great underrated Donald Ross golf course, incredible greens there. And we rebuilt the fourth 18th and eighth greens. And if we just said, we're going to build them to 2.2%, you would have three out of 18 greens that you could tell the difference we still want them to push the envelope a little bit when we're looking to rebuild greens on a classic course. We understand, you know, the speeds keep increasing. The superintendents are incredible and they get great. You know, they, they just get these greens performing beautiful and they roll true, but we still gotta, we still gotta keep some authenticity to that. You know, the 15th green here at Lancaster has never been rebuilt on it, but we're not in any, hurry to to rebuild that green these dialogues that you have with clubs and that choice that then it, maybe it's not always that extreme of a choice it's not a sophie's choice in every situation but that conversation you have do you find it's easier to convince or get your point your desires across in clubs like concord in a, in a rural setting versus a club in a metro setting where whether you know whether you admit it or not, they admit it or not, they're looking over their shoulder at the club up the street and see who has the fastest greens. And it's a big, it's a big point of of pride to have, you know, the fastest greens or the nicest greens or the the best conditions. I think everybody strives for the best conditions. I, I think that's something that they hang their hat on of having the best conditions. And I I, I think the the arms race when it comes to greens, um, yeah. We see it, but we see it in certain regions, you know, um, and the conversations that we have 
it's interesting sometimes the level of the club. Not that we want to say any club is better than another, but you have some clubs that are more well-traveled. Memberships are more well-traveled. Mm-hmm. They seem to be okay with the extremes because they go play elsewhere and they see the extremes and they, they, you know, they see what other clubs are doing. Then you might have a club where maybe the members are more insulated and that's their home club. And they're more concerned about hitting a certain number. I notice it. I mean, not if I don't have, you know, I'm not involved in, in greens committee meetings all that often, but just anecdotally, you go to a city and you play a few courses and you talk to members and, you know, the first thing out of their mouth, or the, not the first, maybe it's the third thing, but eventually you get down to, you know, aren't these greens great? Look how fast they are. They're rolling at 14 today. Yeah. And, and so I, I grew up in Eastern PA. In fact, I, I grew up 20 minutes from, from Lancaster Country Club and now I live in Western PA. And Western PA is one of those prime spots in the United States where poannua greens are still the norm. And I'll never forget one of the clubs we work at. And, and I thank you for your comment because that, that triggered a couple of things. But one of the clubs we work at was very much a working man's course, you know, um, wonderful architecture, um, very urban setting, population all the way around, you know, all around it. And, and the guys would come, the guys would play in the morning and then the group, another group would come in about two o'clock in the afternoon. The two o'clock in the afternoon guys wanted the exact same conditions that the guys had playing in the morning. So the superintendent literally sometimes would cut or roll at lunchtime. <laughs> so the guys at two got those same conditions. It's a and pretty they, good service. <laughs> but they prided themselves on how fast their greens were. I played in a tournament there one first hole above the pin. And I barely touched that ball and it was off the front. The members that I was playing with loved they it. Loved it yeah. They thought it was the greatest thing yes. in the world. High-fiving. Me, mentally, I was done and it was the first hole. Mm-hmm. Because I knew if this green was like this, then how many more would we see like that? And so, you know, yes, I think regionally you do see that, that arms race. Oh, well, so-and-so is rolling at this. We can roll with that. And if they're rolling like that, then we can roll like that. And I think sometimes what defeats the purpose then is when you start introducing topography into the process where you have a lot of classic greens that are sloped from back to front, which is the example of that club that I just gave. Um, then if you go on to some flatter courses, rolling that 12, 12 and a half doesn't seem to have the impact that it does on some other courses that have those topographic changes. So it, I think it just it's it's dependent sometimes on that topography and the style of architecture. And I just, I, it, it bothers me because I know how good greens can be. And I know how good the architecture can be using the entirety of the green. You know, I just had a, I had a conversation with a superintendent where he has essentially, you know, if you, if you were cutting whole locations within a flag stick or two paces or three paces off the edge of the green, he's added another pace because he just gets too many complaints from the members on some of these perimeter hole locations. And so even though the greens haven't shrunken, he's internally shrinking the greens by limiting the cupping areas. 
So now all of a sudden you're, you're losing those quote unquote Sunday hole locations where, you know, uh, the fronts of the greens or something close to a bunker. Yeah. I I think in our email exchange, you know, you were saying potential questions and, and, you know, what, what have I seen in my time in architecture? I think that's impacted design and, I think it's no doubt. I, I, I do think it's it's green speeds. You know, I know Ron Ron Force was just up at the ASGCA meetings and and I think that was one of their topics was was talking about green speeds. And so you take green speeds and then you couple that with some of the technology we have with Easy Locator or some of these other things that tell you, okay, if you're rolling this fast today, you can't cup there. I think then that gets in the mindset of whether it's superintendents or it's green chairman or whatever that then they're driven by that information. That's that's essentially where that 2.2 number came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And what it does also is, you know, you're not just losing whole locations. Over time, it it perpetuates itself where, where members are never going to want to see that whole cut out there again. So it takes away something from their playability of the golf course because they're never going to get those bounces on the edges of the green. They're never going to get that unpredictability. They're never going to get to see that putt roll to that pin position that they otherwise should see. Oh, for, and it just exactly. narrow, it narrows everything, the, the consciousness of the player, the, the fear level of the superintendent, and everything just becomes restricted. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. When, when we when we presented um, Philadelphia Country Club, we put up a close-up, and it was their second green. And I showed them, you know, we we had the outline of the existing green, outline of proposed green. You know, it's it's green expansions. Everybody's doing green expansions, and architecturally, it's almost second nature. But when you go into a club that hasn't been through the process in a long time, this is new to them, you know, and that's what I was preaching to them was like just think about these greens where you're going to be able to cup in locations that you haven't cupped in possibly since world war ii maybe the 60s (laughs) you know how exciting is that kidding yeah like i you know we get to do some great things whether it's a new design or whether it's restoring something or whether it's renovating it and you know um bunkers and fairway lines and people get excited about different things on the golf course. I get excited about green expansions and, and making these areas usable again, because, you know, when you think about uh, a false front, but you can cup closer to it. Now, all of a sudden you've got a hazard. That's not necessarily a hazard. It's a steep slope. It's a false front of the green. If you under club, you're rolling back. If you over club, you're putting back down to kind of onto a steep slope. If you, if you sneak a corner back in and now all of a sudden where a pin wasn't able to be located but 20, 25 feet from a bunker, now it's 12 feet, um, that's a great spot. I remember, I think it was 2000 and, and maybe 2008, 2009, we did some green expansions at Kirtland Country Club, um, great old Charles Allison golf course in the Cleveland suburbs. And sorry, Hugh Allison, Hugh Allison. Um, and why is that? Why do you have to call him Hugh? <laughs> I, I just Adam Lawrence popped into my mind. And if, if I have he, lunch, he with, got me with on that one once or twice, too. But I'm sticking with Charles. <laughs> <laughs> my problem was I when I was presenting recently and I got into this notion of, of Hugh Allison and their course is a Hugh Allison golf course. I'm, I'm typing my summary report and I said, Hugh Wilson. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, <laughs> see. But anyway, um, I remember superintendent at that time, Chad Mark, who's now at Mirfield Village, 
we jumped into this bunker on the right side of this green and we we deliberately we put like a paint can real close to the bunker where we knew we could get a hole location and we were having so much fun trying to get the ball close to that paint can knowing that was going to be a hole location but they hadn't seen that thing in probably 50 years that's what excites me about about the architecture and restoration and renovations that we get to do. Yeah, and if you think of it in those terms, you're not just, you know, get, providing, you know, a new bunker look or shifted bunkers and different strategies, but you're giving them a sense of real estate and space that they always had, but they never used. And you're giving yeah. them something that's invaluable, which is land. And yeah. good players will hit shots into these greens that they never considered hitting before. I mean, it'll be yeah. it's a, in that sense, it's an entirely new course and a, and a gift. Without question. So you've been, I mean, these are conversations that you've been having with, with clubs for, for many years now. You, mm -hmm. you came into the profession in the 90s. I'd love to get your thoughts on what specifically maybe what golf course architecture was like to you as a young person coming into the field in mm -hmm. the 90s. I know it's changed. We can talk about how it's changed. But what were your first experiences? You came up, um, you had some early relationships with the Dye family and working in that organization was, exposure. So my my earliest experience, it was, it was interesting. Yes, I had a chance meeting with Pete Dye. Um, I think it was before his credit card commercial, but he was building, he was building the Pete Dye golf club. Is he still the only architect with a credit card commercial? Gil, Gil Hans has to no, have Gil, one. Gil has, yeah, Gil has, uh, I think it's an investment company or something like that. <laughs> but um, so I met Pete and by that, that summertime, I was working with his son, Perry. So I started, I started working with, with Perry um, through connection through Pete and O'Brien McGarry, Cynthia, um, Cynthia Dye McGarry's uh, husband. And they were gracious enough to bring this kid out of WVU out of West Virginia University studying landscape architecture. Thought he wanted to be a golf architect. And now this was out, out west somewhere? Yeah, out, was uh, Denver. He, he was on uh, 25 and Yale. And yep. uh, I get there and, and what an incredible experience. You know, Don Plasic was an intern that year. Um, <laughs> Scott Sherman, who's now with Davis Love, yeah. was there. Don Plasic, who's worked with Tom Doak and Renaissance Tom Golf Doak. for for years and years. Jim Urbina was there. Yeah. Um, Cynthia was there. Matt Dye, you know, the whole Dye family. It's a pretty was good there. crew. And and then there were a couple other guys. One guy named Blake Sterling, which Sterling and Martin, they do a lot of work in Spain and Portugal. Um, Blake Sterling was an incredible influence and just spent so much time with me teaching me sort of the die design ways and things like that. And there was another guy named Dan Armstrong. So what an incredible group of people um, that gave me my first exposure into architecture. And then um, I'm, I'm like vice president of our student body, whatever, at WVU. I'm responsible for bringing in speakers. So I bring in Jan Beljan. She's a West Virginia grad. Oh. I bring it. I can't remember this guy's name. I, I, I feel terrible, but I can never remember this other guy's name. And then I bring in Ron Force. Ron Force at the time had an associate, Bruce Hepner. This yeah. is in 91, yeah. maybe 92. Another for, for listeners also went on to work with Tom Doak at Renaissance yeah. for a yeah. while. And um, Ron is really sort of bursting on the scene and doing a lot of restoration work. Yeah. He was doing work at Lehigh. He was working at High Endersport, and I think doing some stuff at Riviera, built the alternate 10th green at Riviera and the, uh, the, the, the sixth green. And when Ron exposed me to what he was doing, I was really intrigued. 
because I actually had been accepted at two schools, early acceptance when I was in high school. I wanted to be the next Bob Vila. I wanted to restore old homes. Right. Yeah. Old homes instead of And I see this yeah. golf course, like restore golf courses. <laughs> like, what an opportunity. Um, when I got out of school in the early 90s, there had been a downturn in the economy. It's tough. To, I, I, I was not going to return to uh, work with Perry. So I was looking for something else. And I landed with um, a landscape architecture firm actually in my hometown here in Lidditz. And they wanted to get into golf. So I was like, man, this is great. I'm going to be out on my own, doing my own thing, but working under this umbrella of this company. And that lasted for about four, four and a half years. I wasn't doing enough golf and it was not what I wanted to do. And that's when Ron and I hooked up. So you got to imagine that I joined Ron in 1998. The restoration stuff is still going strong. You know, at that point, you really had Ron Pritchard, Ron Force, Brian Silva. Brian Silva. Yep. Um, maybe Tom and Gil's Tom was a little first bit. on the scene. Yep. Tom always kind of had that in him. Yeah, those were really the oops, those were really the top people doing restoration. Absolutely. You know, it's 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 interesting today because courses people are talking about being restored. Before you already did media, them. <laughs> they were actually restored already. <laughs> yeah, they're on you their know, second or third restoration. Yeah. So, but seeing. You know, Ron has been an incredible friend and an incredible teacher, you know, mentor. And seeing how involved he was in the process, understanding the history, Ron has a mind like no one else I've ever seen. Some people pick up on the nuances of greens. He picks them up instantly. The subtleties of those greens and the nuances of the different styles of architecture within the same architect and his designs. So I've had a great, you know, teacher in Ron and a great design partner. I've learned so much from him and, you know, how have things evolved? I do think we're starting to see a bit of a departure sometimes from the historic aspect of courses where, you know, the restoration's important, but it's the restoration plus, you know, we're going to kind of add a little bit more to it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. Um, I just think there's certain instances where more restraints needed. Mm -hmm. um, and but then there's other areas where I think they've done. I think it it looks great. It it plays differently. There's a lot of interest being introduced. Um, that that's kind of the biggest change that I've I've seen. You know, the the Oakmont model. I think every, I remember when Oakmont cut down all their trees, I had clubs that I was presenting at specifically one in Ohio. Somebody stood up and said, you're not going to turn us into Oakmont, are you? I said, no, Oakmont's Oakmont. Be specific, be, be who you are. Let Oakmont be who they are. You know, we're not going to get into this whole free tree, but Oakmont spurned a whole notion or idea of good tree management programs um, where you can keep some great trees and yet still have the openness and have the vistas, you know, there's, there's been a lot that has, has really changed. You know, we, we did the tiger tees for a long time. Now I love seeing it where the forward tees are a bigger part of any plan. 20 years ago, the senior men never wanted to be on the same tee. Now they're okay with it, you know? Um, and we're seeing courses getting even shorter and we're still in some instances chasing the tiger tees. Um, like the grass types keep getting better. Conditions keep getting better. So we're getting firm conditions and it's not the brown and sort of the brown and down look. 
you can have a lot of good green grass and still be firm. Nice to see the way the game has evolved and the maintenance alongside with it and the architecture right there lockstep with the others. I want to come back to that point about how the architecture has changed or, or people in your profession are how they are viewing it now versus the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. But what was the process like and the procedure when you got into the business and, and Ron and Ron would know this as well in that time period when you're trying to enact a restoration but you have probably less, I'm guessing, resources to pull from. Bingo. Uh, the, the, the process of being a historian must have been different at that time period uh, versus now, particularly. You know, we, we've, got, we've had almost oh. 20 years of digitization and, and uh, uh, you know, Internet communications and so many other things. But back then, that wasn't the case. You didn't have those tools. Exactly. And I, I've often, you know, Ron and I have talked about this. I felt like. For, okay, actually, that's, that's a great question because I think what you had was most times there was a guy named Craig Disher and, and Craig would go into and he would pull out an aerial photo from like 1938 through maybe 1942. And if you had that, oh boy, what a resource. You got an aerial photo that was likely within 20 years of when the course was built. So you had that. One of the earliest... Um, some of the earliest information we had was out of the Cockwa Club up in Erie, Donald Ross Golf Course, designed in the teens. And then Ross returned like 12 or 13 years after he did his design and he did a walkthrough and he made comments and it was published in the newspaper. So we had that. Philadelphia Country Club, in preparation for the 39 Open, William Flynn tours the golf course, makes notes. They still have that letter. You know, so we have that. So there was written documentation, but for the most part, you didn't find a lot of that. Um, we and were, I would imagine, what, if, I don't mean to interrupt you, but even to find those resources, you probably had to go to a library and, you know, wade through and, the stacks yeah, and, and microfiche. Yeah, that's what I was going to get at that. It was okay, one sorry. thing, like I said, oh, no, 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 not at all. You're, you're 100% correct. I said where the architect needs to understand the history of a place, it's much easier to do it now. Newspapers.com. Um, Joe Bausch here in the Philly area sure, does a yeah, job yeah. archiving things. Mm-hmm. You have other guys that aren't necessarily architects that are archiving these things. Wayne Mars and his books. All these, all these books are out there now. But it evolved to where we have much more information available to us. I also think the appetite of clubs have changed. That the tree programs. I think have had a greater influence on what can be done on a golf course than 20 years ago, because clubs were, they were inclined to cut down some trees, but if you only cut down some trees, that means you can only expand your fairways so far, or you can only move bunkers so far as the whole process has changed with tree management. We get wider playing corridors. We get more, Um, area around greens. We get bunkers not as close to tree lines. And so I think from when I started with Ron to where we are now, I think we have greater architectural freedom on a project to do more. Ron and I have talked about this recently where I said I, I always felt like we didn't push the envelope enough with fairway expansions. Okay. We didn't have the information it's because clubs weren't willing to continue to push the tree line out further. So you couldn't push the fairway lines out further because 
you had tree roots, you had shade, you had all these issues. That's all changed. And so I think that's been a, a benefit architecturally because the most important thing in restoration and understanding classic design principles is about width and angles and strategy. And if you have these narrow playing corridors and narrow fairways, you don't really get the interest of the golf course. You don't get the full offering of what that original architect wanted to give you. And that is options and strategies, risk reward, all of that stuff. And that's certainly a hallmark of the last 10 or 15 years of golf course renovation, restoration, at the very least, you have recaptured that that width and those original corridors. Because, you know, courses even up until the 50s and into the 60s, fairways were generally built very wide. You know, that that restriction didn't come until all those trees matured, you know, in the late 60s, 70s, 80s is when things, I, I think, really started to tighten up. But, you know, you go back and look at those, even those early courses, those Dick Wilson early courses, and, you know, there's, there's very few trees, very open corridors. But to that point does that that must help you speaking of kind of technology and how research is easier to come by and more accessible being able to walk into a club with different aerial photographs from different points in time and present to the club and say look your your golf course didn't always look like these bowling alleys with trees on both sides it used to have these very small trees they were planted right this you know in 1955 we can see them right here in this photograph Correct. And it, and it's, there, there's two things, you know, again, going back to Philadelphia country club, there's a letter where they secured 4,000 evergreens for, I don't know what it was like 50 bucks. I don't know. You know, they were just these little trees yeah. and they planted <laughs> all 4,000 of those things. And so having that information, because people will say, well, these trees have been here forever. It's like, well, no, look, we have this letter and it states this. And you go to a, another course in the where it was designed in the 50s by William and David Gordon, and they have their planting plant. And there were 22 varieties of trees on that planting plant. And when I presented to the club, because all those trees have now since grown up since 1956, I said, if you look at 22, the, of the 22, 16 I could never recommend planning on a golf course. And here's the reasons why. So at the time they were standard nursery stock, available trees, 22 different varieties. And we could only recommend six of them today. And those yeah. were like dogwood, redbud, you know, maybe like white oaks. They, they weren't these great specimen trees. And so here's a club that's now having to do their tree program, but almost make up for mistakes that, you know the design of the original golf course yeah that's that's right in that in those years those decades you know some some clubs enlisted the help of an arborist but typically i would imagine the arborists didn't really have golf at the forefront of their mind they're they're uh, they're professionals in the in tree planning for you know parks and <laughs> gardens and homes yeah. and things yeah just the, the the species the the a lot of times the superintendents would just take the clubs would take it upon themselves. If they don't get an arborist, they have tree planting parties and whatever, anything, anything could fly. I, I shudder at the thought. Yeah. And that's what, that's what's, that's what's keeping you and many of your cohorts busy the last uh, two decades. It's yeah. yeah. Remediation. But going back to this, this uh, topic of the access of information there, obviously, as we're just talking about some real benefits to that, it's a lot easier to 
between you and the clubs to get down to some better understanding of what was built in the past and what the golf course looked like and that can help guide you are there drawbacks to that uh, acceleration of information throughout the throughout the food chain whether it's a dealing with club historians or members who now you know the old proverb you know a little bit of information is dangerous do you is that is there sort of like a flip side of that coin i i think there is um because we we always we hold into the past okay the past is very important and it's important to understand it, but we shouldn't be beholden to it because there might be certain other factors contributing to maybe why a bunker can't go back into that place. Maybe, you know, our, our acceptance of bunker conditioning has changed significantly. And unless a club is willing to regrade entire portions of holes to divert water or, a green set into a hillside that receives a lot of water. And if we're going to change, you know, we've got to make some changes. Um, I also think sometimes that some, some historians or members of clubs that might have some of that information, um, they don't necessarily have the experience of implementation and how it should be implemented um, or construction practices or authenticity of, of how it should look. I think a historian and architect should work together because I think both bring some information to the table that's important, but where one has a strength, the other might have a weakness and, and vice versa. To think of some specific examples where too much information um, maybe muddied the waters a little bit. Um, I can't think of anything specific, but let me put it another way: the, especially more re- even more recently, you know, you can uh, people can go on on the internet to discussion groups on social media. They see photographs of every golf course in the world. Mm. Uh, there are. Um, just little kind of clicky things that, that they like. Yeah. Every every restoration with these flashy bunkers is the best thing in the world. And as you see a turnover in, in club memberships and a new generation of people coming on club committees who are making decisions, that's where I, I wonder if a little bit of information is can be a, can make your job more difficult because they these club members might want something that they don't haven't put in the full amount of time that you have in and researching it, or as you said before, how to implement it. It's just, let's make our golf course look like this because this is what they perceive as being what's fashionable at that moment, which is not all that different than what clubs did yeah. in the 1950s and 60s exactly. and 70s. Exactly. It, and and two examples popped into my mind that when you mentioned social media, I mean, it's it's interesting to see how things have evolved with, with social media. Um, Ron Witten, your, your predecessor, I mean, he, he was very thorough. And yet, even though he was very thorough, they might have missed, he and Cornish and Witten might have missed something here or there. But they got a lot right in those yeah. things, you know, Think about where they started from. Exactly. And so I'm just, you know, something on, on, on Twitter the other day, somebody put a, a post up on Twitter about a course that we had restored. And they said, but boy, I really question the 16th and 17th holes on this golf course. It just doesn't seem finished. It doesn't seem like Ross. 
I looked at it and I read the post and I was like, okay, you know, this, this is two holes on that golf course that were restored literally to photographs that we had of the golf course of what Donald Ross did there. And that's what we're restoring to, you know, so somebody can gravitate towards that and see that post and like, well, Nagel didn't know what they were doing out there. You know, this guy (laughs) says this and he doesn't have all the information, but we architects are guilty of it too. You know um, I know with one of our projects, there was already some controversial associate controversy associated with it because we're talking about rebuilding greens and some architect, you're nuts. You're nuts for touching those greens. Why would you ever want to touch those greens? That architect, those architects or those individuals are not, they don't have all the information. District testing, the information that's available to us scientifically tells us those greens do not drain. And, and anything short of a full rebuild is not, is not going to work. Um, you know, I, I think we're all quick to grab the headline or to grab a, make a headline for ourselves, but I, I think just getting as much information as we can, I think I just went off on a, a tangent there, but when you're dealing with clubs in the, and, and, and Ron would know this, Ron Force would know this too, you know, in the early, late eighties, early nineties, you were the experts. There's no question about whatever you brought to the table. And maybe one guy at the club would know the history of the golf course, but there wasn't that much interest in origins and uh, genealogy of clubs. You yeah. know, a club might know that William Flynn was the designer, but beyond that, they probably didn't think much or even care what the golf course looked like in 1932. Ooh. Where So when they enlist you, you're, you do the research, you're, you are the, the teacher, so to speak, you're informing and educating the membership about what they, they had. I would imagine there's less and less of that now, and there will be going forward. I, I think you're right. Um, I think it is the one thing that we hear from time to time, you know, we, when we're at a club, we're working with, you know, the superintendent, the pro, the GM, and then a committee. And we can talk to that committee and we can get them riled up. We can get them excited about talking about Rost did that and look at that old bunker over there and, you know, all this. When you get in front of 90% of the membership, they sometimes they might not even care who William Flynn is. You know, they might not care who Donald Ross is or um, I, I, I do think we are seeing starting to see a departure from that the origins of a club where they want that restoration plus they want something that looks great on from a drone that's posted on social media and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but i guess in some ways i am because i think are we designing from the ground level forward or are we designing from up in the air looking down and it does form follow function and, and what's working you know i, I just I, I do think there is a, a little bit of that but we've been very fortunate i think in our careers that we've been selective with the projects we've taken on we've tried to work with historically significant golf courses or at least a clientele that still cares about the history of their course i think that's one thing that people look for in us Um, we also are going to work with a club and help them understand their history. And, you know, that's just, it's just how we're built. 
that's the thing. I just think it's how Ron and I have built. We've been together, gosh, 24 and a half years. And, you know, it's, it's been a great run together because of what we've gotten to do. And you went back earlier talking about sort of a freedom of design or, or sometimes when we're restoring things, can that be problematic? And it's, it's nice that we have enough projects where we can let loose on the creativity side and do something that's, that's just different. But then it's also nice to come back to a project where we know we're going to be restoring something that's significant and that was just an absolute architectural gem. And not many architects could improve on what was done you know, now, pushing 100 years ago to now. And I think that's that that's something we're very honored to be involved with. And, and I don't think necessarily a lot of those courses need to be changed. Right. Yeah. And I hate to keep kind of harping on this or coming back to this point, but I, th- I think that friction exists in any kind of renovation project, especially at historic clubs, when you have elements of the membership who want to go whatever direction it is, whether it's all the dial it all the way back or push it into the future and, and do the, as you put it, the re, you know, renovation or restoration plus move. When you have that, when you sense that happening in a club and your instinct is to dial it back and work off the source material and try to get it as close as, as workingly and properly possible to some kind of original vision of the golf course, which is what you spent a career doing. And there are elements in the club who want something different from you. How do you work through that? Is, is where does, where does Jim Nagel and Ron force, where's your line in the sand and how much will you kind of fight for your position in those situations? That's so that's a good point because we, we do have a project where, you know, well-known architect, well-known original architect, good golf course. And I personally, I'm, I love roll-off areas. I think the roll-off areas on green surrounds introduces something to the game that actually can help a lot of high handicappers. You know, if your course is just green surrounds are rough or bunkers on some of these old courses with severely sloped greens, boy, recovery can be tough. So I like to introduce, not everywhere, just in certain areas, introduce roll-off areas. It's it's kind of trendy night right now to take roll-off areas into tees and do all this. And I think in certain instances, that's fine. But I think in other areas, you can be restrained, but you can change how things play around a green. So on a particular project, I was pushing for that and promoting that. And it really was to try and get a feel for what the club was willing to do. And there was no pushback. They just said, you know what? It doesn't show up on any of our aerial photos. I I just don't think it's not here now. It's not in any of the aerial photos, you know, so let's talk about it, but you see where we're coming from. And as the project evolved, it, it got to the point where it was like, you know what? Okay. You know what? Let's be sensitive to the original design. I tried and they, they pushed back and just said, you know what? It's not original to our course. Fine. We tried. I think that's sometimes maybe the difference is that we feel the boundaries. And then if, if we have to, we'll step back. And if they're accepting of where we're pushing the boundaries, then we see where else we can go with that. But ultimately, always trying to keep in mind how it fits with the original architect and that course. 
we we work in Pittsburgh. You have no idea how many clubs have said, let's put church pews in. Totally <laughs> uncharacteristic of that golf course, of that particular golf course. But there might be some areas where maybe it would be interesting to try that. And so with some other courses, we don't want to necessarily, you know, I, I mentioned this club, Concord Country Club. It's it is a total departure from Flint, the bunkering style, the greens design. In fact, Ron Force and I 20 plus years ago thought it was Donald Ross. It was it looked nothing like Flint, but it's Flint. We've got the documentation. We've got the photos. We've got everything. And so. As we've evolved and moved forward with that, we're doing bunker styles that are more reminiscent of Concord Country Club. Now, their positioning might be more like Flynn, but the bunker look, the appearance, grass faces, these things, it's more like fitting for Concord. But we're not going to take Lancaster. We're not Philly or Rolling Green or Maine and try and throw it into that particular. It's different than other Flynn's. So I think in certain instances, will push the the club that maybe they're not comfortable going there. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, that's what that's that's definitely what I have done. Yeah, it's an interesting profession. I'm assume the answer to this question is going to be yes. But can you are there? I'm sure there are instances where after you completed the work, you and Ron think we delivered the goods. We we restored this golf course as best we could. It's historically accurate. We've checked all the boxes. We've done our homework. And this is as close as, as it can be to what it looked like in 1925, for instance. You're satisfied. Ten years later, the club hires somebody else and starts all over again and does takes it a different direction. How often does that happen? And, and what, what are your thoughts on that unique aspect of, of this profession that you're in? That is the fact. It's going to have board game memberships change. I mean, that happened recently. And, you know, the thing about and and the club just said, you know what, we want a second set of eyes. And I was okay with that. When, when it, when it happened, when it first started happening, you're like, oh man, you know, what are they doing? You know, this, that, this, this particular club, when we inherited the course in the early, you know, I don't know what, 04, 05, it was in pretty bad shape. And you take it forward, it gets some recognition, maybe even got an award or something like that, renovation type, honorable mention, whatever. You took them from where they were to where they are now. You spent 15 years working with them and they say, you know what, we're just going to test the waters. We'd love to give you an interview. Um, And then they say, you know what, we're going to go in a different direction. I now look at that and say, you know what? We got them as far as we could. Give it everything that we had. Um, and that'll be it. You know, we got them where we could. Now, there are also other clubs that maybe do that. And it really hurts because you think, man, I, I really, it's unfinished business. Like we didn't really get to see that project through to its full potential. Maybe because of the factors we talked about earlier. Um but, but, you know, clubs are going to do what they want to do. You know, sometimes we we hear, you know, one we've heard recently, a club that we've we've worked with, you know, they, they kind of want a, a name, you know, <laughs> and we're not a name. Yeah. We've been at this a long time. We've done a lot of restoration. It should be a name. It's their fault if they don't somebody, somebody that. brought that to our attention. Um, but it's, you know, 
I, I think we're getting used to it. And, and the thing about force design, Ron's been doing this since what? 33 years now. Okay. And he's had, he's got an incredible resume of restoration work that he's done. He's been, you know, for a long time, he was teaching a course called the, you know, classic, classic courses in the master architects. Okay. And it's interesting because some of the stuff that he was, he developed on his own, he studied, he wrote about, you hear people repeating today, but he was talking about that stuff 30 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've been at it long enough that some of our clients, literally we have some clients that have been with us over 30 years and we feel like we've evolved with them because we've had second chances to go back. And as we, as they have evolved, we also have evolved because we've done more work on that particular architect style, or we've seen things differently. And I think that's a benefit where we've had long-term relationships with some club because there's not necessarily unwillingness to change. It's that we've got to change because the club membership is changing. And maybe we're not necessarily changing the golf course, but some of the things we didn't get to do 20 years ago because of maybe tree lines or because of budgets or because they didn't want to do their irrigation system and now they have to. So now we can expand the greens. All these things that we wanted to do, we can do now. Mm-hmm. And we have to continue to push forward with those ideas. And in some instances, maybe look at a little restoration plus or some, some things, you know, Kirtland, we're, we're, we're doing a bunker project at Kirtland right now. This is, this is a good example of what you're talking about. When we did that project in 07, I think it was 06, 07, we had, a, we had a, a, a budget that we had to work with. We didn't have liners like we do today for bunker liners. And if you, have you ever been to Kirtland? I, I have you ever Not made it there? No, I haven't. So good. The topography is incredible. Bench greens with bunkers that are easily 10 and 12 feet deep or more. But with the liners that were available at that time, we couldn't flash the sand as much as we wanted to because we still had all this earthwork above. So we knew it would just wash things out. So we always continued to work with Kirtland and, and, you know, we did an irrigation system with a consultant and we expanded fairways and now we're coming back around on the bonkers. And younger membership, memberships changed a little bit. There's been some other Allison work done throughout the United States. And they just came to us and said, listen, we just wanted a different look on these bonkers, you know? So even that they're staying with us and we need to evolve with them because now there's better bunker technology and in, in building bunkers with the liners that we have, there's better manufactured sands, which will hold on these faces more. And there's been more restoration maybe in line more with Perono and what done elsewhere by Allison that we can use on an Allison course. It's not a departure from him. Plus we have ground level photos and there was some, some interesting things done there. So now we've got a client that we've worked with where we've evolved with them, their membership has changed and it's all worked together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, we're very honored to be a part of that and, and glad that we continue to work with them. That's good to hear. You know, it does seem like with membership turnover, there is a, a you know, Clubs are eager to move on and committee members and are have historically 
no matter what era, been eager to put their own stamp on their golf course, whether it's installing a fountain in the pond or planting, planting trees or blowing up the golf course and rebuilding it. So that that is well, satisfying. I, I, I think the best the best ones to be involved with are those that understand that have an appreciation for the past. You know, like I said, we've worked we worked here at Lancaster um, since, like I said, it was like 04, 05. And, you know, some of the people in, in positions of power haven't changed, but those that we work with closely here at the club, there's three people that have been here since the beginning. The green chairman, Rory Connaughton, the pro, Rick Gibson, and myself. And, you know, Ron was involved at the beginning, but it just evolved into a project that I've managed. And that consistency is important. They've only had two superintendents and we've, you know, um, superintendent we have now, um, Josh Sanders, Saunders, we've worked together previously. So we understood each other. So as Lancaster has evolved and changed, there's, there's been sort of this core group that's had the same vision from the very beginning. And the vision has evolved at the same time we've all done it together. So we make sure we're, we're moving through this process together. And ultimately at the end of the day, it's all about the members and serving the members and making sure the members are happy. As we wrap up here, Jim, I'll, I have a couple specific questions. I, I want to get your thoughts on uh, a little more narrow focus. We've been talking about the the field of restoration, renovation in general, and some abstract ideas, but you've seen so many William Flynn golf courses and can probably speak as well as anybody in the country about those courses in, in particular. Do you see a through line from what you've noticed in Flynn courses into the work of Dick Wilson? Uh, you've been involved in some Wilson renovations too. And what is that through line? Obviously there's a chasm between when Flynn stopped working and Wilson became an independent architect and started working. A lot happened in between. I'll tell you what, the best education I ever got was when we were working at all three courses, still work too. Um, I was pretty young with Ron and we spent a day at Indian Creek. Okay. So here's William Flynn with a 366 acre pallet to do whatever he wanted. Then the next day we go to Pine Tree, maybe one of Wilson's best designs. And then two days later, we're at Boca Rio. Okay, now here's the connection. Boca Rio was designed by Robert Von Hagee. Von Hagee essentially built Pine Tree. That's when Wilson was really starting on a downturn. So he builds Pine Tree. Wilson, although he's not the lead guy for Flynn, but he's got some you know involvement at Indian Creek. The best education. So that that lineage, that line is clearly evident in terms of bunker concepts, bunker arrangements, two, two on one side, one on the other, three on inside, one on one side, bunker arrangements at green, orientations on greens that strong. You know, if you think about Lancaster here, there's a great diagonal that's created on the fifth hole, a bunkerless hole here that has this diagonal that's formed by Stauffer's run. It's a small tributary. You could pick up that on Wilson's courses where he, he orients the greens on such a diagonal that, you know, it, it plays differently based on conditions and hole locations and where you are positioned in the fairways. 
Boca Rio was a really good golf course. And, and Robert Von Hagee, you know, did the design, then he altered it. Same principles, diagonals, orientations of greens, varying bunker placements, you know, that, that line play being distinct and close to bunkers or carrying bunkers. And if you play away, that next shot's going to be challenging. Good classic design principles that you can see in each one of those three courses. Best education I almost had ever received on, on golf courses over three days. That's awesome. And, and, and the Flynn to Wilson lineage. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Similar question, uh, or it could be a tangential, perhaps thinking of the classical period, 1910s, 1920s, what designer are you familiar with that you think was consistently able to put together the most compelling strategic arrangements of golf holes? Some, some, some are known for greens, you know, some are known for, I I think, I I think it's, I think it's two of them. I I really think Ron and Ron Ross and Flynn just top of their games. I I really ways. Um, I think greens wise, both were experts at building greens, but yet the appearance of them was much different, you know, with, with, Ross and, and prowls coming in and swales and different levels and things like that. And Flynn with his, his just varying degrees of slopes across a green, but not something that you looked at and it was really popping out at you, but very challenging greens. Um, and I just think their bunker placements, I think one had more restraint in Flynn but the other with his bunker placements in Ross, there was so much variety, but the arrangements of them created a lot of interest and created a lot of strategy. And I think, you know, I, I think it was too, and I think it also is really comes from a body of work. We've done so much Ross and Flynn work through our, 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 um, careers that we see that but as it's like as i'm talking to you i keep thinking about like the fifth hole at newport which is so is such a wonderful golf hole a short you know a par four that tilling has designed that is very strategic and just you know wonderful wonderful design there but i I still got to go back to i think flynn and ross you've probably been asked this a hundred times but for donald ross what are the most in your mind what are the most fun or interesting sets of green complexes that you've come across salem oyster harbor springfield and buffalo you didn't buffalo, have to think very long you about what. that <laughs> no i didn't i think you pick buffalo up and move it east and that's one of the best golf courses one of ross's best and those greens there are incredible and springfield not a lot of people know about it it's kind of you know, it's 45 minutes west of columbus and it's, it's, it's got some topographic changes, but for the most part, it's on relatively flat ground and the greens there are so good. They're really good. Um, Oyster Harbors, I learned early from Ron that those greens were good and then I saw them and it just confirmed what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Salem, boy, Salem is just, uh, that's a great golf course. And the, 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 that, that moraine topography is so good and then coupled with the greens there, Really, really good golf course. Yep. Great golf. Yep. 
Yeah. Do you do you get a chance to play many modern golf courses? Uh, I wish I got a chance to play many classic golf courses. <laughs> <laughs> we're so busy. Um, I, I tend to really stick to more of the the courses that we're working on. You know, and not that I mind playing a modern golf course. I mean. I, Grew up out here in Lancaster County playing mom and pops farms and public courses and everything. So I've been one that'll tee it up anywhere. Well, uh, I, I'm going to ask anyway, because it's something of a tradition. I want to know, what do you think is the best modern golf course or the place that you'd like to, you would like to play or have played that you'd like to go back to? <sighs> Sand Hills is so good, but it, can you, it's, it's, is Sand Hills really a mod? I mean, it is modern. It's it's the modern. It's the birth of modern. But then I got to throw the Pete Dye Golf Club in there. It, it's I live an hour from it. I met Pete Dye while he was building the Pete Dye Golf Club. I've been back a number of times. Um, they now host my alma mater's golf team, WVU. So there's kind of a special place in my heart for that. Um, but but Sand Hills, I. I I just had such a wonderful time playing Sand Hills, and you know, it, it just there's so much about that that course that you know it evokes so much the ground game. Um, it's wide open. The wind's going to have an impact. I, I just I saw Sand Hills, and, and that was a long time ago, and it's still I still really appreciate that place. What a phenomenal phenomenal place. It's an interesting profession that Jim Nagel and partner Ron Force work in. You can do great work for a club and deliver an ideal product for that point in time, but time doesn't stand still. Turnover and membership and club priorities can inspire them to go in a different direction. And sometimes the historical education or appreciation of the progress the club has made in recapturing its origins doesn't matriculate to later generations. Popular trends, a dip in the rankings, and whatever changes the zip code competition are making can all lead to committees searching for new input. That's the nature of renovation, the process of continual renewal. What's good and what's right, or at least the perception of what's good and what's right, is never really finished. But something Tom Doak said that I recently read stuck with me. He said that the beauty and attraction of historical restoration is that there is an endpoint. You can get the golf course to a place that best represents the particular moment in time that's trying to be best expressed. In this paradigm, there is an ideal form. And the implication of that is, once you get there, the only objective should be to maintain it. There need not be a continual revisiting of goals and modifications. But it's probably not true that many, if any, golf courses will ever really achieve that zen-like state or truly be finished. They're living, growing utilities that must serve a fickle and changing population. And though designers don't always like the revolving door of renovation, it's better than the alternative game of musical chairs in which a world where clubs and courses that no longer want to change represent an ever-diminishing chance to have a seat when the music stops. I'd like to thank Jim Nagel for joining the podcast. Please subscribe to Feed the Ball wherever you get your podcasts and leave a star rating and review when you do. If you like the pod, please spread the word and share a link with friends and family or anyone who likes golf courses. You can listen to past episodes with some of your favorite guests, over 100 of them, at feedtheball.com. And lastly, Remember to wash your clothes in cold water. It's not a joke. Modern chemical science will get your laundry just as clean and fresh. Plus, you'll save money while helping conserve resources. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.